Hello, friends. It's Dave Bjork here, lung cancer survivor, patient advocate, and yes, I'm the research evangelist. And welcome to the Research Evangelist podcast, coming to you from just outside of Boston, Massachusetts. And the Greek meaning of evangelist is bringing the good news. And I like to think that I'm bringing the good news by interviewing amazing people in life sciences. And and in particular, I focus on on cancer and even more focused on that is lung cancer, um, being a survivor myself. And I call these folks on my show brilliant but not famous. And it's a funny thing because they're all brilliant uh, and they're well-respected in their in their field and what they do in the communities that they serve, but they may not be a recognizable name to my neighbors here in Massachusetts. So um, I like to share these stories and I'm excited today uh, to have a conversation with uh, Dr. Jonathan Spicer. And Dr. Spicer is the medical director of the McGill Thoracic Oncology Program. And he earned his medical degree from McGill University after which he moved to Vancouver and completed his surgical internship uh, at the University of British Columbia. Uh, Dr. Spicer completed his training in cardiothoracic surgery at the world's largest cancer center, the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas. His clinical interest focuses on minim minimally invasive approaches to lung cancer, as well as complex resections for advanced thoracic malignancies. John is also involved with clinical trials, and we'll ask him about that today. And with that, I'm happy to say, John, welcome to the program. Thanks so much, Dave. It's uh, fun to be here with you today. Awesome. It was great to meet you um, recently and um, happy to have you here today. So uh, let's start by having you tell us about your medical journey. And, and I know you're from, from Montreal. Of course, you're well-traveled in your training, but can you kind of tell us how you came about to be this brilliant but not famous haha, surgeon and cancer immunologist? Yeah, uh, thanks. So, um, you know, I think when we're all teenagers, we go through that uh, uh, trying to figure out what we're going to do with ourselves. And um, I had the fortune of growing up just, just up the street from um, a really brilliant person, uh, Dr. Balfour Mount, who uh, I would say is sort of the father of palliative medicine in, uh, in North America. I didn't know that at the time. I just, uh, you know, would throw tennis balls at, 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 at the side <laughs> of the wall uh, with my friends and he'd periodically come out and say, you know, you're turning our house into a drum. He'd say it so nicely, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I guess he was writing a book or something. And so I, I had this uh, uh, fortune of, of knowing him. And uh, when I was, I guess, 16 or 17, I... I thought I liked biology class and dissecting frogs and things like that. And I thought, well, maybe medicine's an interesting thing. And, and so through, I talked to him and he, he was a great uh, mentor and guy continues to inspire me significantly. And he, he had me uh, volunteer at the palliative care ward at the old Barovitura hospital. And, and I think that that was um, a real turning point for me. And, and that's when I <clears throat> got engaged in, medical training and so on um, and then subsequently as a medical student I, I had a rotation on our cardiothoracic surgery service here at the Montreal General Hospital and uh, Dr. David Mulder was uh, was the uh, chief of the service at the time still with us and active you know in his 80s and in the office I, I was just across the hall from him and he's just uh, was sort of a god to me and um, certainly uh, inspired me to go into surgery and subsequently into cardiothoracic surgery. And I've, I've really tried to 
model my uh, myself after him in many ways. Wow, you've already brought up the word that is a very common thread with everybody that I interview, which is mentorship. And you know, you you actually told me um, about your time at MD Anderson because I was curious to know if you know someone from Montreal that goes down to to Houston what that was like. But you mentioned a couple of of people who were mentors that really inspired you during your time leading up to and, and including your time at MD Anderson. Can you tell us about that? Of course. Um, so in the, in the department of surgery at McGill, we, we, um, we have the, one of the oldest visiting, it might be the oldest visiting professorship called the, the Steitman uh, visiting professorship in cardiothoracic surgery. And, uh, uh, what's cool about it is that every year it's usually in May, all of sort of the alumni, people who trained in, in CVT surgery at McGill, who've gone around the world and, and, and uh, um, started careers elsewhere. A lot of them come back uh, for the event uh, when we used to travel for these things. <laughs> and, and I got to meet uh, some, some really important people uh, in my career there. And two of them were uh, Reza Moran and Garrett Walsh, who are both Canadians and transplants to, to Houston, who have really uh, successful careers at MD Anderson, have been there many, many years. And uh, so when it came time for me to look uh, for fellowships, that personal connection was was really important. Uh, they obviously promoted their program heavily. And, uh, and when I went to visit and met all the other uh, faculty there, um, Steve Swisher, our portion, uh, Dave Rice, uh, or Sapeshi. I mean, the, the whole collection of them, um, uh, Wayne Hostetter, I'm, I'm forgetting a couple on the way here, but, uh, I hope they don't listen to this, <laughs> but, but just a, a superb team and, and, and so friendly. And, you know, even though they're not all from the South, I think they kind of, uh, had adopted that very personal way of interacting even though I was a trainee uh, or prospective trainee there I really enjoyed their their the way about them and uh, so it was it was a great fit for me and I went on there and uh, you know I, I took after uh, or I tried to take after uh, Jack Roth who who's sort of the grand poopa there uh, most senior surgeon scientist in, in the division of thoracic and uh, and so just a, a transformative time for me uh, and set me off to on the path that I'm on now. Yeah. Well, speaking of teamwork, uh, I'd like to ask you about the balance between, you know, time in the, in the clinic and time in the lab, you know, and, and the team that you've put together um, where you're at right now. Can you tell us about that sort of balance between you know, doing surgery and doing these trials and other activities that you're doing in research? Yeah, so uh, when I was recruited back to McGill, it was uh, by the now division chief, uh, Dr. Lorenzo Ferry, who, who was also, as it happens, my PhD supervisor when I, I did that in sort of the middle of my general surgery residency at McGill. Um, and and he's, a, he's a man of tremendous energy. <laughs> you get the opportunity to meet him, you'll, you'll see he's a really fun person. Um, and, and he is an extraordinarily successful surgeon scientist and uh, was able to strike that balance and, and really believed in, uh, believes in the idea of uh, having an active clinical practice, aligning your, your research uh, practice with that and, 
so it, it all kind of fit from from the where I come from uh, training what I've experienced and seen as was possible at MD Anderson and I was sort of given that mandate of of, of building a, a world-class lung cancer clinical and research effort and I think one begets the other and vice versa you know I, it's hard to do great things without having uh, both those elements and then you know luck had it that a lot of great people uh, kind of came into my life uh, <laughs> I have a phenomenal uh, research associate Ronnie Rays who's been with me sorry as a postdoc in my lab when I when I started um, and uh, and so he was he was extremely uh, pivotal in getting the lab going. Um, then there was a recruitment at the Goodman Cancer Research Center, which is the McGill Cancer Research Center that I collaborate with heavily. Um, two two recruits, actually a husband and wife couple, uh, Logan Walsh and uh, Daniela Quayle, who were uh, PhD scientists and uh, did uh, several years of postdoc at Sloan Kettering. Um, Logan is a computational scientist and wet lab scientist who brings this very rich expertise in handling large data sets, genetics, um, cancer genetics, biomarker discovery. And Daniela is an absolutely brilliant, world-class uh, tumor microenvironment expert who's interested in the uh, impact of metabolism, obesity on cancer progression. And uh, they're just the sweetest couple. I've become real close friends with them. And, what I, when people ask me why I do this, obviously the, what we're trying to do for patients is the guiding light, but day to day, it's, it's the fun of being with really great people that, that, that you enjoy learning from and joking around with. And that, that's what makes for a really strong team. So those are the scientists I, I collaborate with most closely. And then there's just a, a great team of clinicians, uh, medical oncologists, radiation oncologists, pathologists, uh, that I think have come to share a vision of what can be accomplished. And um, so we're a young team in the sense that, you know, there've been a lot of great lung cancer uh, clinicians, people have done trials over the years, some scientists, but not really a programmatic approach at McGill. And that's really what we've tried to build. Uh, so I hope we're, we're, you know, gonna have some successes in the coming, uh, coming years in that regard. That's awesome. I love the the use of the word collaboration, I, and I know that that's something that is really important to you. And it's great that you're building such a uh, a great team there. And uh, as you know, I I I did have a lobectomy uh, myself, and so I I do know of what that is like. It's very invasive, uh, very traumatic experience. It was for me. You know, a week in the hospital on morphine and the whole nine yards and, and a long time to recover, especially as a young person who, you know, wanted to be active. So I'd like to talk about, uh, you know, you're on the clinical trials team at McGill and, you know, you were telling me about a new trial for patients with early stage uh, or, or stage one or two lung cancer using um, immunotherapy with or without chemo prior to surgery. And, you know, we've talked about, you and I talked about this trying to be less invasive um, as well as being innovative in, in, in ways to treat the earlier stage cancer patient, lung cancer patients. So can you tell us, I'd really like for you to tell us about the trial. Sure. Yeah. Well, um, you know, I, I, um, I love that you tell your story so openly and, and, and share it because it's important. And um, 
what I'll say about surgery for, for, for lung cancer is that uh, it's an incredibly effective uh, uh, treatment, but uh, people aren't lining up outside our offices because uh, it's a fun thing to go through <laughs> um, <True> that. <laughs> and despite all of the advances we've made in terms of making it less invasive and, uh, and, uh, and more tolerable, people recover more quickly, you know, it still has a durable and long-standing impact on, on people's quality of life. So, well, you know, it's a little cheesy, but at MD Anderson, they have this logo that says making cancer history with a line through uh, the cancer, you know, and, and um, the, the mission is to put themselves out of business. And I think sometimes when you, when you think along those lines, understanding the limitations uh, of what you have to offer, say, as a surgeon, uh, or the impact it has on the patient, which isn't always all good. Um, you can come up with some really innovative ideas of how to move the field forward. Um, and, and so the trial that we designed, it sort of has that in mind and, and incorporates elements of data that have been popping up very rapidly now uh, over the last few years uh, to, to try and make a big change for the way we approach um, the very earliest stages of, of lung cancer. Um, and it's a little bit driven by uh, a frustration of seeing how, well, it's fantastic, I'm not upset about it, but I wish we could do the same thing for lung cancer. But you know, early stage one breast cancer, stage one melanoma, the survivals are in the high 90s. And um, it's just not the case for lung cancer. And it's in my mind because we haven't brought all of these systemic agents that are tolerable, highly effective to complement the active surgery, uh, which is very effective for, you know, curing localized cancer, but we know that our ability to understand who will have a metastasis or current theodorone is not the greatest. So the goal of the trial is to bring, um, you know, these two agents that, especially when combined, are, are highly efficacious. And we've learned that from an amazing effort that's been uh, conducted by the Spanish group. Uh, Mariano Provencio, who's a medical oncologist there, led a multi-centered team to uh, give chemo plus immunotherapy prior to uh, resection for stage 3A lung cancer. And that's, you know, typically one of the more advanced stages of lung cancer that we'll consider an operation for. Um, and, you know, in the results from their Lance Oncology paper, it was just within the last, uh, back it was September or October of uh, last year, uh, they had pathological complete response rates, meaning no detectable living cancer cells in what they removed in upwards of 60% of the patients that they treated with this combination of immunotherapy and chemotherapy. That's a big deal, right? So it kind of means that if indeed all those cancer cells are dead and there is no more viable tumor, that maybe the, the, the operations in those patients weren't necessary. I mean, we, don't, we have no way of predicting that right now um, so that we have to do the operation. But if we could get to a point where we could really accurately predict the event where there is no viable tumor cell, could we then one day imagine a scenario where we wouldn't have to operate and we wouldn't have to remo remove normal lungs surrounding the, the re residual scar and perhaps really offer uh, 
a transformative care plan for these patients where they wouldn't have to deal with the risks of the operation and the consequences. Comes with a, the counterpoint to that, which is, well, how do we know that those cells are all dead? And how do we know that not going to surgery doesn't mean we compromise a long-term outcome? So enormous amount of work to be done down the road, but that's sort of the, that, that's the goalpost that I'm looking at with the design of this trial. So we were fortunate to get um, uh, supported by, by the, the company that, that um, is, uh, we applied for funding from. And uh, essentially, it's not a huge trial. It's, you know, 44 patients in whom we're going to randomly assign uh, either immunotherapy alone or immunotherapy with chemotherapy for patients with tumors that are between two and five centimeters that have no uh, lymph nodes that are involved. And I think what's what's new and different about this is is really um, trying to bring these systemic therapies to patients who would otherwise not be offered it by a standard of care. Um, we're measuring circulating tumor DNA over the course of that treatment period. We're combining that with advanced imaging techniques, looking at PET scan, CT, which are conventional, but also special MRI um, uh, imaging before and after treatment and trying to layer all those tiers of information uh, to see if we can predict, predict the occurrence of pathological complete response when the patients come to surgery. Hopefully acquiring the data for that long-term vision to be uh, tested down the road. That's amazing. Uh, yeah, go ahead. I don't know if I've accurately or clearly described it, but that, that's kind of the basic goal of the, the trial. And we're, we're just another month or two away from being able to open with the final ethics things being sorted out. But, uh, we've had Health Canada approval to run the trial, which was a big step. And we're close. We're very excited to, to get started with that work. No, I think that's amazing. And from a, from a patient perspective, I think that's so that's so innovative and you, you know, the, the use of the, of the uh, ongoing um, testing through the process, you know, it leads me to a, a quote that I read that, that you had, that you had said recently, maybe, well, actually maybe it was a, a couple of years ago, but you said that there's a real synergy between innovative clinical trials and developing personalized medicine pipelines. The seamless flow of information from the clinic to the lab and back to the patient is what we are establishing here. I thought that was pretty cool because it's it's really uh, this the way that you just described that trial really kind of describes what what you said in that quote. Um, fair enough, and, and I mean I think that that's what we're trying to do is to execute that um, that vision. And you know what I said about having fun working with these brilliant people is uh, for me what's m most exciting intellectually is to to interact closely with people who know things that I don't understand <laughs> and yeah. that I just don't have the, 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 the expertise or knowledge and every, everything that I've done scientifically or even clinically that, that I feel has been important or, or exciting and new has, has come from dipping into fields that I know nothing about and learning from people who do and 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 working in that collaborative team-based approach, I think that that's how new ideas are born and 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 really innovative work comes about. So, uh, you know, like uh, in, in embedded in in this trial, we're going to be doing some pretty uh, advanced genetics. We're going to do single-cell uh, RNA sequencing before and after treatment. We're using a uh, 
molecular imaging platform that allows us to look at uh, 40 different molecular targets on the same section uh, of, of, uh, of tissue so that we can look at the geography of immune cells and how they're interacting um, with each other before and after the treatment. You know, I, I understand this, the, the technical aspects, the science of how to do that, but I couldn't even begin to describe to you the informatics to uh, analyze this. Uh, and, and so these are the conversations that I have with the scientists that are so stimulating and, and fun. And I think will, well, I hope will lead to some, some really uh, important discoveries. Well, and I think you've brought up a really important point again, from, a, from my perspective as a patient, but also someone who is really interested in, in research from a non-scientist, like I'm not a scientist, but, but this idea of, of just being so willing to talk with other people who are, who are very skilled and very accomplished and brilliant in the work that they're doing, whether it's informatics or genetic molecular profiling or whatever, and really being open to that, you know, as a clinician and a researcher to say, you know, I can't know everything. And I, and I talk about that a lot. I just had Dr. Lee Schwartzberg from, from the, the West Clinic uh, on, my, on my program. And we were talking about how can community oncologists keep up with all of the things that are happening, you know, in, in research, right? So all these different breakthroughs, how is it possible? And I've always thought, I can't even imagine what that must be like, but you're open to that. You're collaborative and you're, you know, you bring to the table your expertise and you take uh, with this approach, you're, you're you're always learning, but also leveraging the, the expertise of other people. And I think that's important for people to know that because it's not just one one person. You know, you're going to see a doctor, you're going to see an oncologist, you're going to see a radiation person, yeah. or you're going to see a surgeon. It's more than that, right? Oh, a hundred percent. And and that's why I try to explain to my patients, you know, that it, it takes a team. Um, and uh, again, like. Uh, you know, one of the things I find exciting about this work that we're doing is um, it really helps me help the patient get ready for the operation, which is in many respects the, the highest risk segment of their trajectory from, from diagnosis to hopefully cure. And, um, you know, we have to be humble about um, the downsides of, of what we do and the impact we have on patients. And we have this uh, the fortune of having this phenomenal uh, anesthetist who's um, uh, kind of moved into um, the area of uh, prehabilitation and rehabilitation medicine around the in the perioperative period. His name is Franco Carly. Um, he's he is a superb individual, and and with him we've developed um, this kind of goes way before my time, but developed this uh, program to get people fit for surgery. And one of the challenges we face is, you know, not everyone was 35 and in good health when, <laughs> when they get diagnosed with lung cancer. A lot of our patients are, a lot of health problems uh, may not be ready to go to the operating room tomorrow, even though in our minds, that's the best thing to get this cancer out and have them move on with their life. So there's that sense of urgency to get there. Uh, and we have a competing risk if we take, you know, a few weeks to, to work on their physical uh, capacity, their, you know, do some exercise uh, training, work on their nutrition, make sure they're psychologically ready. If they happen to be smoking, make sure that they can, can stop before surgery, all these different elements that make for a better outcome for that patient. 
and we had a competing interest between getting all that stuff sorted out and optimized so that you have a really safe operation and a quick recovery versus the this cancer that you know is still moving along and um, I hate for patients to feel like they're waiting for their operation and and in Quebec, you know, we have, it's a health, public healthcare system, which is great. I, I love it, but it does have some resource limitations and I can't bring everyone to the operating room tomorrow as I'd like to. So you wait a few weeks and, and this, this trial strategy creates an, an environment where I can start an anti-cancer treatment very quickly um, and take the time that they need to get them fit for the operation, which is sort of the highest risk segment of, of their uh, care and that strategically for these patients is in my mind really really important and and I, I think when I speak to them they understand that and it makes them a little bit more willing to participate in in the, the more onerous part of being in a clinical trial you know the additional blood draws and, and testing so it's a great gift they're giving us to to, to be able to learn from them but the the trade-offs I, I mean I wouldn't propose it to them if I didn't think that it was highly beneficial to them on the long term. That's a really good point, John. I'll tell you, that time from when I was told that I had to have surgery to the actual surgery, and I don't remember the exact amount of time, but it wasn't like three days, it was weeks. Mm-hmm. And I remember that that was one of the most stressful periods emotionally for me that in some ways worse than just getting the initial diagnosis of the U of lung cancer. It was like, okay, so then get it out of me. Right. And that's very stressful. But if, and so if, if someone had said to me at that time, but in the meantime, we have this trial that we're going to, you know, I would, I would have been, let's go. Sure. That's, yeah. I mean, so if you think about the, you're, you're thinking about the emotional side of what a patient is actually experiencing at that time. Yeah. I, Maybe it's my days in the palliative care ward. With yes. <laughs> um, and so I, I really try and retain that. But it's also the feedback we get. Uh, you know, we do um, uh, annual fundraisers for the, we call it the POP program, the perioperative program, um, to, to help raise money to pay for the salaries of the kinesiologists, all these people that, that the, you know, aren't necessarily funded through our, our useful um, um, government funds. Um, and it's amazing to hear the testimonials from these patients and what they tell us, because cancer care is not particularly restorative. You know, a lot of the people who come with early stage lung cancer have no symptoms. Maybe it was discovered accidentally uh, on a CT scan, or maybe hopefully they were in a screening program was found that way. Um, but, uh, we're taking a lot away from them and they usually didn't have much that they felt was wrong with them, you know, they thought, I feel well. And, and so the chemo, the immunotherapy, the surgery, we're all just taking stuff away from, from what makes for a good quality of life. And obviously it's with the goal of prolonging and, and preventing bad things from happening in the future. And we obviously believe in all that, but when they talk to me about the perioperative program, they say that that was their, um, their guiding thread that they felt gave them a sense of control over their disease where they were doing something for themselves that was making them feel better, making them feel like everything else was going to go more easily. Uh, so it, it all kind of fits together in that sense where we're, we're really trying to 
provide a complete whole person care program that uh, is beneficial to them and, and, and makes them feel in control. So that, like you said, that, that anxiety is, it's, it's often, we all have anxiety about all kinds of things, but when we can do something about them, we feel like we have a bit, you know, some element of control over what's stressing us out. It, I, I think generally helps. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. And your, your humility is really shining through as we, as we're talking, I, I want to share another quote, uh, that I that I read, it was a, from a patient who came to see you after a diagnosis of stage three lung cancer, who said, at first I was devastated. When I was told I had lung cancer, it was very difficult, but I had hope when I met Dr. Spicer. So I wanted to ask you, this is a 78 year old uh, uh, man, uh, how does it feel when you're able to tell patients about potential trials that could help them? How does that make you feel emotionally um, when you're able to share that with somebody? Uh, well, it, it, it feels great. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't mean um, to put you on the spot there, John, but yeah, I think I know who you're talking about and he's a, he's a wonderful man. Um, you know, when I, he, he was the first patient I put on a trial and I was only two years out in practice. Um, I was mentored in that regard by a wonderful medical oncologist who unfortunately, uh, well, happily for her, but unfortunately for us, retired uh, this year. Her name is Vera, Dr. Vera Hirsch. Um, and she has a long history of contributing to lung cancer research and care and uh, McGill for, for decades. Um, and she was kind enough to, to sort of share the leadership of, of that, the conduct of that trial at our site um, with me. And, um, and this patient, you know, uh, trusted that uh, this was going to go well and, and, and have uh, had faith in, in what we were offering him. But I was, I was a little stressed, to be frank, because it was the, the first one. Uh, no one in Canada had given uh, uh, immunotherapy, never mind dual immunotherapy to a patient uh, for, and this was a big tumor, it was not a non-easy surgery. So... Uh, you know, you go out on a limb a little bit when you when you um, uh, ask people to to be a part of it. You have to believe in it, um, and uh, so we're we're extremely uh, grateful to these patients who put their faith in us and agree to be part of the process. And you know, for him, it, it it's worked out really nicely. He's still doing super well. And nice. That's great to hear. He still goes to work. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, you know, I've heard, I've, I've interviewed other people who say, who talk about the joy of being able to call a patient with good news, right? In, in lung cancer, right? You know, I have good news. I have a, you know, we found a mutation and we have an actual targeted therapy that I can start giving you tomorrow, you know? So, you know, there's, I like to, talk, to remind people that all the people who are caring for cancer patients are humans and, you know, so it's 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 really important, I think, to you know to recognize that, and I, and you obviously do have the empathy and compassion for your patients. So I want to say I really appreciate that, and it's very clear from from talking to you that that's the case. So um, I wanted to. What's that? It's very kind of you to say. <laughs> oh, no worries. Um, so now I'd like to I'd like to ask you about um, the White Ribbon Project. And my listeners know that I've been involved with that from from the beginning when I first heard about it. It's a grassroots movement of, of patients and advocates and caregivers and 
it's grown into including clinicians and researchers and cancer centers, you know, to let uh, the public know that we want to change the perception of lung cancer, that anybody can get the disease. And we'll try to get rid of the stigma, whether you are, have a history of smoking or you never smoked, it doesn't matter, it's very inclusive. This is actually how I, you got on my radar because I saw on Twitter that you had become active in offering to, to get involved. So I'd like you to tell us, first of all, how'd you hear about it? And, and number two, why were you so excited about what seems special to you about this movement that wanted you to get involved? Uh, yeah, great question. Um, well, I mean, I, I have to give credit to, to Twitter. I, I, I uh, sort of reluctantly uh, got onto Twitter. <laughs> uh, it's funny because we got an iPad from my dad, I think in 2009 or something. And, you know, people were talking about Twitter back then. So we, I, I signed on and, and got him a handle. He, he never used it. <laughs> <laughs> And then I, I, I never went on for, for like years. I was busy resident fellow, et cetera. And uh, it was Mara Antonoff, Dr. Mara Antonoff, who's a, the program director for the CT surgery uh, program down at MD Anderson now, um, who sort of encouraged me to, to get on it. And it like blew my mind um, because within, within a few months, I was following a lot of what I thought were important things, you know, uh, journals that were people's leading scientists who are, who are sharing their research and sort of magically with minimal effort, I, I felt like I was at the um, very leading edge of what's being published, what's being talked about uh, in, in the areas of research. And it wasn't just lung cancer, it was, you know, neutral biology, uh, I mean, you know, there are all, all kinds of subjects. So it's really easy to follow. Um, and, uh, and then I, I started to realize that there were a lot of people, patients, survivors who were advocating for lung cancer. And, uh, and then sorry, I, this white ribbon project came. And it just seems that in the last few months, there was a, a, a group of Canadians who were, who were getting uh, more engaged in it. And, uh, I saw a picture of uh, the Ottawa Senators hockey team uh, sort yeah. of holding a ribbon with the, I think it was Kim Moran McIntosh. Uh, yeah. In the, anyway, so I, I liked it. I retweeted it. I said, this is great. Uh, and it is great because this was sort of, I, I only started my practice five years ago, but it was sort of unthinkable five years ago that you would have um, such a strong and present advocacy group for lung cancer simply be because people with more advanced stages weren't living, you know, the survival is so poor. So if you don't have survivors, you, you, it's hard to generate advocacy. And I think the, you know, we're talking about it more now, but, um, but I think it was less comfortable to talk about it before, but there's an enormous stigma around this disease. And um, I have patients who might've smoked you know, way back and quit and, and whether they quit or not, and they're still active smokers. I mean, the, um, the enormous stigma that they feel the, uh, guilt that they, uh, that they suffer from and, and this impairs their ability to reach out to, to, to friends, family, to share their stories more publicly. So that is an incredible barrier to, um, to advocacy. Uh, and, and, it, and it's because it is a very real perception that these people did this to themselves, that, that you know, that, 
and no one deserves to get the disease. Um, there's an opioid crisis. We're not blaming the victims of the opioid crisis. Addiction is a, is a, is a medical uh, condition it, 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 and it's been driven by huge corporations and money for, for decades. And um, it, it's just, you know, tremendously uh, dispassionate to, 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 to not uh, um, show empathy to these people and provide them with the best care possible and kind of try and lift the stigma away. So all that to say that the White Ribbon Project, I think, is, is accomplishing that. Um, and so anything I can do to support our, our patient survivors, um, you know, I, I want to do, obviously. Yeah, that's great. And I've told others who are clinicians and researchers how much it means to us when you do, when you just stand up and get involved, it really means a lot to us as, as, as a community, right? And, and you just touch on all the, the right things. It's, it's inclusive, whether you smoked or not, whether you, you know, you never smoked, you have a history of smoking, you quit smoking years ago, whatever. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Nobody deserves lung cancer. And, and I think, you know, using the analogy of the opioids is a, is a good example because, you know, there shouldn't be a, a stigma. And we were so happy when, you know, Jill Hamer Wilson and, um, and some others, uh, Bill and Lisa Ware, I believe, were the ones who, who have, I think their, their future son-in-law plays for the Ottawa Senators. Um, and so, you know, knowing him, knowing that he's involved with a family that has been impacted by lung cancer, he went to the Ottawa Center, his teammates, and, and got them involved. Which I thought was so amazing. You know, it was really, it was really great. So the our Canadian colleagues, you know, it's uh, the, pro, the the whole movement started in Colorado, mm-hmm. but but we have these meetings on Saturdays, and sometimes there's almost as many Canadians as there are Americans, and I think that's really cool. So it's really kudos to to all of them, but. But thank you for yourself getting involved because that also, you know, helps get other people like you, you know, to to be noticed, you know, to notice what's going on and maybe get involved as well. Sure. Yeah. I, I think it's uh, it, it's just a sign of, uh, of a lot of good work that's been done, and and um, and, and things are changing for for um, folks with lung cancer. It's um, it's so true, you know, and smoking has been such a red herring to the disease because of it. Obviously, it is a, an important risk factor, but it has completely obscured our ability to understand the heritability of the disease. Um, and, and there are significant uh, genetic components. There was a great study at the American, at the uh, ISLC lately that showed that in small cell, you know, often we think of small cell, this is a, a disease of smoking, but a very significant, over two thirds of the patients had mutations in their uh, germline cells that were uh, cancer predisposing, in cancer predisposing genes. We weren't able to appreciate these things until these more recent tech, uh, sequencing technologies have become available because when we use traditional heritable, you know, uh, uh, genetic approaches to understand the heritability of diseases, it would all get obscured by this important risk factor. And, and so I, I hope that this research and that, that will bring better ways of screening people, identifying higher risk uh, populations. So yeah, definitely. Well, you know what, 
you know, I could we could talk about that's another topic I'd love to talk about is is you know, the whole screening um, effort. But um, we'll maybe have to revisit that sometime down the road, John. But um, I, as we finish up here, I, there's um, there's there's really you know your Twitter bio says that you're you said this that you're an aspiring farmer, and I can't let that go with asking you what the heck that means. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, yeah, so. Uh, I mean, I, I, um, my wife and I and our, our two kids moved uh, a little bit into the suburbs. Uh, this Montreal's an island, and then there's this other smaller island that's just off of it called Il Bazaar. Um, and we have a, a house here, and it's on the river. And uh, maybe I have like an acre and a half that's um, kind of wetlands, but it used to be um, a uh, uh, a field, a farmed field. And so, um, you know, I, I've gotten into gardening and um, trying to plant a, a little bit of an orchard there, but uh, totally amateur. And uh, <laughs> I, I just like good food. And if I can find a way to grow it on my own, and, and stuff, that's kind of a fun hobby for sure. I have a tractor, which was like a, an exciting <laughs> new toy I got last summer, which was a lot of fun. Oh my gosh. Well, someday when I see you on, you know, on, on food network or something, you know, talking okay. about your farm and all the, all the organic uh, fruits and vegetables that you're, you're bringing to the market. <laughs> we'll have some fun. I, 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 I think there might be a lot of fruit rotting on the ground. <laughs> <laughs> the garden beds that are overgrown for quite some time to come. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Well, well, thanks for sharing that, John. I appreciate it. I didn't mean to put you on the spot again, but I, I want to thank you again, you know, for all the work that you're doing. Uh, you're, you're really having an impact uh, in the field of lung cancer research and care. And, you know, from my perspective and representing the lung cancer community, I just want to say thank you again. And thank you so much for being on the show. Well, thank you so much, Dave, for everything that you're doing, for kindly inviting me to be here. Um, this is all so important. And uh, I'm just honored that you of having me on. So thank you very much. Uh, thanks a lot. 